Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter. We're joined as always by the silent Bob to my J, Brandon. That is my favorite one ever. And I have really I used wanted, that one before. I don't think you have. And I really wanted to leave like some dead air there <laughs> just just for the part. But, you know, it's, it doesn't work that way in the audio world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. There are podcasts with long dead air. There, uh, that's that's true. And there's a very popular a feature. local radio show that that features. <laughs> yeah, that where it's a feature, not a bug on the yeah. for the common man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, how you been, buddy? I've been very well, man. How have you been? Good. I mean, this is, these are like, there have been a couple days recently where I've, Courtney and I have said to each other, like, this is the perfect Minnesota weather. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. The, the humidity's down. It's like in the low 60s at night. It's in the mid 80s during the day. That's that's the best time to live in Minnesota. Uh so yeah, we've been loving it. The tomatoes are just like ripening on the vine in the garden, which is another great thing that's happening. And I'm a week from today, I'm headed back into the boundary waters for the second time uh this year. So yeah, everything's looking up. I'm happy. How about you? Uh, everything's looking up too. I mean, I'm 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 trying to enjoy the weather as much as I can. It is really nice out. Yeah, it's dry, but it has really been nice the past few days yeah. here in Minnesota. And you, so, for, I just actually I just thought of a quick question for the Boundary Waters. Uh, do you think you're going to notice a significant change in in the environment from the first time to the second time, being as we've had next to no rain in the middle and it's just been an incredibly dry yeah. summer? Yeah, the, the biggest change in our experience is that we won't be able to have campfires which i'll be honest completely sucks i mean i don't disagree with the forest service you know banning campfires recreational campfires it does make sense but it just it really changes the experience of of the uh of, of the cooking and just sitting around at night and smoking cigars and stuff like that i think I don't think we'll see a big difference, although I do think lake levels will be down. Um, you know, we're not going to... There have been no fires in the Boundary Waters other than small ones. The big fires have been up in the Quetico in Canada, which are... They don't even fight those fires. Um, and for good reason. They don't... Uh, you know, our terrible policy of, you know, stopping wildfires forest fires over the last hundred years has led to all sorts of problems so they let fires burn in the quetico which means a lot of smoke in the boundary waters um there is going to be some rain later this week so i i i don't know i i really don't think it'll be visibly changed from the trip i took in june gotcha gotcha there are a lot less bugs this year brandon (laughs) I mean that's been one that's one thing that's really amazing is the the lack of bugs based on uh you know the the drought because just a, the kind of places where um mosquitoes and flies um nest and ha- or whatever hatch a lot of those little mud puddles are dried up so yeah, that's that's a change. Fortunate side effect I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't complain about that that one but uh yeah so it should be good and then then you know we get back i get back from that trip 
I go to the state fair and then uh, my, you know, my kid starts school the following Monday. So I, I still tend to live on that uh, academic calendar as long as I still have a kid and one kid left in school. That <laughs> I guess that helps. That helps like with the time of year and stuff like that. Like yeah. still starting. All right. Falls right around the yeah. corner to get yeah. prepared for hunting, everything else. Yep. Well, hey, did you you read A River Runs Through It? I think you told me. Didn't you read yeah, that? I did. It was required reading for us back in the day. Nice. And do you remember it? Remember I do remember it. it. And, and I remember the film, of course, as well. Yeah. It was it was very good. It was it's one of those books where I think I was like what twelve or thirteen or something like that when we had to read it. And it it's like the perfect time to read that that book. It's, and a book like Hatchet or something like that as well. It's really yeah, yeah. really my good. kids read Hatchet, but they never had to re- read a river runs through it. I wish they had. Yeah, no, it's it's really good books. So I was it's, I was excited for this interview. Yeah, this this interview today is with John N. McLean, who's the son of Norman McLean, the author of A River Runs Through It. Uh, John has written a memoir called Home Waters, in which he reflects, you know, back on his upbringing as the son of Norman McLean, who grew up fishing in Montana every summer. Uh, they, you know, they spent. Norman was a professor. They, he had the summers off, and the whole family uh, went to uh, went back to Montana and spent the summers in a cabin on Sealy Lake, where they fished and messed around. And John's memoir is really a beautiful remembrance of that kind of childhood, but of course, also of being the son of somebody who wrote a singular piece of literature. Uh, And it's just fascinating. I think, you know, Norman McLean wrote it late in his life in his seventies. He wrote a river runs through it. He had, he'd written some stuff before, but nothing like that. And he, he went on to write another book that was incomplete at the time of his death that was subsequently completed by, you know, his son and daughter and editors and stuff. But, but in all that, in Norman McLean's literary career, A River Runs Through It stands out, like I say, and has kind of a singular nature. And then, of course, the film, which starred uh, Brad Pitt as Norman's brother Paul, took the, the popularity of that work even to a whole nother level and is just a beautifully enduring film that makes me weep every time I watch it. So... Yeah, it's uh, it, I I it, this was a great honor to be able to have John on the podcast because I'm such a fan of his father's novella, and um, yeah, we had a great conversation. It's a uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Well, I I think you know people will be intrigued. Maybe they'll want to. Um, Find Home Waters. You can find it at John McLean Books. We've got it linked in the show notes. We would love it if you subscribe, rate, review, share. Uh, We'd love that support for the Reverend Hunter podcast. So thank you for listening. And here's my conversation with the author of Home Waters, John N. McLean. John, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the Reverend Hunter podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me, Tony. I uh, 
I, I mean, there's so many things I want to talk about with you, but um, first of all, let's talk about your last name because it's been mispronounced, misspelled. I mean, what I, I know that I know that your family, your father's family, took the spelling and the pronunciation quite seriously. Yeah, and they did it differently at different times. <laughs> you know, you have to remember that the Scottish names are an uh, anglicization or a romanization of uh, Gallic uh, uh, and Celtic uh, names. And the lairds didn't really care. You know, the guys come up there and they say, you know, we want to turn uh, McGillioin into McLean and or McLean or whatever. Uh, we think we'll spell it this way. They say, you know, make yourself happy. Uh, <laughs> so they get regularized over time. And ours is a, a, an odd spelling of it, the, the customary one, which is M-A-C small L-E-A-N. And I'll say that to a secretary sometimes and say, no, 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 it's M-C <laughs> or it's capital, capital L. L right. so, no, it's my name and this is how it's done. <laughs> uh, and pronounced... And it's pronounced as though it were spelled M-A-C-L-A-N-E, McLean. McLean. A little harder than McLean, uh, which is the way it looks. It looks like McLean. But, uh, you know, again, you know, it has changed over the centuries. Right. And, uh, my Uncle Paul uh, changed it to for his byline. Uh, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but I like it the way it with the Yeah. The way it is, uh, M-A-C, small L-E-A-N. It and looks, uh, it, it, I believe it was, uh, you know, it was a little disconcerting for your grandfather when your Uncle Paul changed it for that byline. It was, but you have to remember that he married an English woman. Uh, Clara Davidson was, uh, she was Presbyterian, but she was, because uh, she was up on the northern border in England, the family was. Uh, but the reverend always called his family a British family. Uh, uh, British immigrants rather than uh, pure Scottish. But he would, you know, favor the Scots. <laughs> uh, yes, he was upset with Paul about that and for a lot of other things. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think it added to the general upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's hard to know I, 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 whether to talk about your father's book first or your book first. Let's talk about your father's book first. Um, okay. I will say this. I'm... Uh, I, I'm a Dartmouth man myself, so there is always this point in the film where I don't know what they call it in movie making. It's it's kind of like the equivalent of a bridge in a song or something. It's you know Paul goes away for six years to Dartmouth, and there's a little musical interlude and a bunch of authentic old black and white photos from the time of Dartmouth, which makes every Dartmouth grad a little misty. Um, but your dad later in his life didn't look back so fondly at, at his time at, at Dartmouth College. I think he was very conflicted about it. I think it was a valuable time for him. Uh, he made very good friends there. He was uh, uh, treated well by some people. He was kept on uh, as a teacher there for two years and taught English there. Uh, a wealthy uh, Dartmouth uh, alum hired him as a tutor for his children on a European tour hmm. one summer so that uh, he was part of the Sphinx Society and so on. But he always felt his outsider status and resented that 
and was very proud of the fact that he never contributed to Dartmouth <laughs> as an alumnus, which, as you know, is something that every Dartmouth alumnus uh, is required to do by moral <laughs> imperative. Uh, he didn't do it, and he was proud of not doing it. Interesting. Uh, after A River Runs Through It came out and became popular, the Dartmouth uh, uh, magazine got in touch with him and sent somebody out to interview him, and he was very happy with that. I mean, he was happy for the attention and so on. So it was a conflict. I mean, he came from a little backwoods town and uh, had a stepped-up education. Uh, he had no problem uh, uh, with the educational requirements at Dartmouth, but he had a big problem with the social mm -hmm. requirements. And he didn't like the guys in uh, fluffy sweaters and uh, <laughs> with lots of money and yeah. uh, things that he didn't have and didn't like and didn't want. Uh, he took his shotguns to Dartmouth and was very proud of the fact that these guys... Uh, didn't go out and walk the back roads to hunt birds, and he did. Yeah. But he was also very admiring of the Dartmouth guys who would get in a canoe and go down the Connecticut River for hundreds of miles. And right. So, you know, go figure. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of us probably who went to Dartmouth have ambivalent feelings about it. I've got a son there now, actually, ah, who just really? canoed on the Connecticut uh, last weekend. Um and yeah, Dartmouth has this great, you know, outing club, this ancient outing club that goes back almost to the founding of the school uh, that maybe your father was involved with. But um, but but as a Minnesotan at Dartmouth, I had a similar experience, and I remember ah. vividly where I was standing in the cafe one day when one of these <laughs> floppy sweatered. East Coast Blue Blood said to me something to the effect of, now, Minnesota, I get all the M states confused. Which one is Minnesota? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. You got it right, right there. Uh, right. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, um, but still, to, nevertheless, that, that, that little montage of black and white photos in the film is uh, warms my heart every time I see it. Um, your your dad, although he was a great purveyor of the English language, it, it's just, okay, as a writer myself um, and somebody who is just taking my first stab at fiction at age 53, I take some comfort in the fact that your father came to his great work of writing for which he will be remembered as long as people can read. I mean, it's such a stunning novella, but he came to that late in life. And yes. I wonder if you have opinions about why he took so long to write when he was clearly such a gifted writer. Yes, I do have opinions about that. And I thought really somebody uh, ought to investigate that other than me. Uh, and write about it. You know, he didn't start writing River Runs Through It till he was 70. Uh, but it was not as though uh, all of a sudden he flipped on a switch and started writing. He'd been trying to write uh, his books his entire life. And in fact, uh, if you think about it, during his lifetime, and he lived <clears throat> to uh, a ripe old age, uh, well into his 80s, he never published a full-length single book 
uh, A River Runs Through, it's a collection of stories. Young Men on Fire was not published in his lifetime. Uh, so what happened? Uh, well, I think looking at his failures is kind of interesting. Uh, he tried to write a book about Custer, for example, mm. and he tried to do too much. Uh, he worked on it for years and years, and he was trying to write a military history. He was trying to write a social history, an artistic history, a cultural history, uh, this, you know, and on and on and on and on. And it just became overwhelming. Uh, history of the Indians. Uh, he was trying to go too far, uh, on, especially on his first time out on a book. Uh, if you've written books, you know that that first one is a tough nut to crack. Um, after that, if you follow your own lead, uh, it becomes uh, easier. But the first one's tough, and he never got it. That was part of it. Uh, the other part of it is that look at the kind of stories that he wrote. Uh, both The River Runs Through It and Young Men on Fire. And they're great tragedies. Uh, you don't write that kind of stuff when you're a kid. Hmm. Uh, but you can do it in your 50s and 60s. So he waited till his 70s. And I, I waited till I was, I didn't wait. I, I was 77 when I and 78 when I finished Home Waters. So it's kind of the same thing. And what I've discovered is that there is a time to refrain from writing these very personal uh, stories where you're looking back at your whole arc of your life and you are treating it differently than you did at the time. Uh, you are being much more reflective. You are hopefully coming to the qualities of old age, which include wisdom if you're lucky. And certainly a river runs through it reflects a deep wisdom about the human condition. Uh, I don't think you get that early. So I, I, if someone ever does this and does a, a serious look at uh, writing in old age, that would be where I would point them. Mm -hmm. But you don't condemn somebody for, why did you wait so long? We could have used all this stuff when you were younger. And then you could have gone on and written all the four or five books you were thinking about writing after that once you got started. You know, don't hang that one on him. Uh, and he was asked that question. I bet. Uh, Studs Terkel asked him that one time, and that was his answer. Don't hang that one on me. I'm the happiest of authors, huh. which is a way of skating out yeah. from underneath it. You know, that doesn't really explain it. Boy, well, uh, I, to he would have written a hell of a book on Custer, though, I bet. <laughs> well, he, you know, there's part of it that uh, he did write, yeah. and it's available, and uh, it's in a collection that uh, we put together afterward, of Nor the Norman McLean Reader. Okay. And it doesn't fit with anything else. It doesn't fit with a whole book on Custer. But it fits with his his passion for the West, even though he settled and raised you in Chicago. Right. He uh, always wanted to write stories about the West. Uh, that's one thing we share. I always wanted to write stories about the West uh, and do. And wound up being writing a lot of stories about uh, the Middle East and <laughs> Washington, D.C. and a lot of other things before yeah. I did that. But he remained, uh, his soul remained embedded in the West. Uh, very much so. And it wouldn't have been possible for him to deal with it the way he did, I don't think, if he hadn't worked at the University of Chicago. 
it got him away from the West, for one thing. Mm -hmm. And he was aware, as I am aware, that you really, a lot, there are a lot of guys who need two places to work, especially if you're a writer. You need to go out in the field and collect things and, you know, put yourself into it. And then you need to pull back and get away from that mm -hmm. so that you can put it in some perspective. And the University of Chicago also challenged him. I mean, you look at the kind of stuff that was going on there when he started out. Uh, the atomic bomb, uh, the Manhattan Project uh, had a big link to the University of Chicago. Uh, the first chain reaction was in the handball courts there. We used to play in those courts when I was a kid and mm. get balled out for it because it was believed that there was still radioactivity there. Mm. There probably was. I don't know. Uh, the, the University of Chicago was a progressive uh, uh, adventurer in education uh, with general education, which he believed in. He started the uh, Committee on General Studies in the Humanities, which is uh, an outgrowth of that. So there were great f things going on intellectually there, great ferment. And for a while, you had a great football team. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. Jay Berwanger, who was the first winner of the Heisman Trophy and a halfback for the University of Chicago um, team, the Maroons, was a great family friend hmm. uh, and remained so uh, uh, my father's entire life. So that gave him independence uh, intellectually, morally. Uh, he didn't have to be the preacher's kid who was expected to go to the First Presbyterian Church every Sunday and all the rest of it. And he was able to break away uh, from 19th century Christianity uh, and have an independent stature yeah. uh, on a kind of a grand scale. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you write about this in your book um, about your father's and also your ability maybe to appreciate the West because you don't, maybe in a different way because you don't live there than people who live there year round. Uh, you know, you're, interestingly, you know, your your book is called Home Waters, which has this very strong connotation that this place you go back to, this lake and these two rivers in particular that you write about extensively, are home to you in some way, some kind of, you know, maybe a spiritual gravitational center of your life. And yet you spend less than half the year there. Um, so what do you, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat kind of, we have, we, I live in the suburbs of Minneapolis and we have um, a bunch of woodland near a lake in Northern Minnesota that we go to, you know, every other weekend kind of thing and not in the winter, but it, I'd say I've done a ton of writing there and it's, it's a very similarly for me, it's, it's a very, um, it has a spiritual gravitational pull. So I wonder what you think that is about loving the West, but maybe loving it too much to live there or, you know, you, you're retired now and you still have, it's not like you've moved back there. You Whoa, hold on. Okay. <laughs> I am not retired. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I have a little touchy no, that's about good. that. That's good. That's good. When you retired from the Chicago Tribune yeah. after 30 years, I did not retire from the Chicago Tribune after 30 years. I quit. <laughs> and it's very different to yeah. do that, especially when you're 52 years old. You've got 20 year working years ahead of you. You've got kids who are in school. Uh, and all of a sudden, you're looking at in health insurance and uh, the need for an income and so on. Uh, I am 78 and I am not retired. I continue to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and work hard. 
Uh, I don't mean to be too jumpy about that, but it gets said all the time, yeah. and it's just not true. I've had two periods in my life where the, uh, the West uh, has been uh, an important place to be in. One was when I was growing up in my formative years. And I think that's what happens to us, Tony. You know, when you're a kid and six or seven years old, the world is a magic place yeah. and it invades your spirit. And you remember that for the rest of your life and it calls to you. Uh, I was lucky that when I was 52 and I quit the Tribune and started writing books, that I spent an enormous amount of time at the cabin in, the, in Montana. Uh, I used it as a base uh, and I would spend six months there. Uh, it wasn't built for that. It's not built for cold weather. It's a summer cabin, but I may do. Uh, and I got a whole different perspective uh, on what the cabin and the West and fishing meant. Uh, I had to learn fishing all over again, for one thing. Um, I'd fish in the East and kind of kept it up, but I hadn't gotten into the modern tackle and techniques and so on. And I did. I learned the whole thing, got better equipment and so on. But what held me there in terms of the title of the book, Home Waters, is what I did as a kid. Mm. Montana was what I cared about. Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, Chicago was not my favorite place in the world. Montana was. And uh, when I wasn't there, I was unhappy. And when I was there, I was happy. And it, that calls to you your entire life. Uh, if you walk away from that, you're denying yourself as a person. Mm -hmm. Now, for a lot of years when I was working, um, I didn't think too much about it because you're busy. You have a family you're raising. You have a wife and uh, she's new and and so on. But it's there. It doesn't go away. That's why I call it home waters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the... What was it like? What were those childhood visits like? I mean, readers of your book will get a real sense of it, uh, but th th those were different days, you know, when you were going out there. It's not something that my kids or even your kids could probably imagine. Uh, um, the the even how primitive the cabin was that you that you all spent the entire summer in. No, we didn't get electricity until REA went through in the late nineteen fifties. Uh, it was an expedition. And you prepared for it uh, like an expedition. Uh, we had to think what you could put uh, in a small space because we all would pack into a, our car, uh, sometimes with a dog. <laughs> uh, so you couldn't take much. Things were rare and not the important part. And then you would drive out there. And it took us uh, most of a week to get out there. We didn't try to uh, set any records. And dad was, uh, and my mother were very fun up, up front about that. They didn't try to do 500 miles a day. You know, I, I remember one day we barely made it over a hundred miles, hmm. delayed start and so on. But 300, 350 miles was a big day. Uh, so it took you, by the time you got there, you had passed through climate zones yeah. and geographic zones and time zones. Continental and divides. Been to the bad lands. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you'd gotten out of the cornfields uh, and you'd really had uh, a kaleidoscopic uh, experience where it was always changing and, and forming into something new. Uh, then we got to the cabin and it was the way it had been when you left it and you rushed to see if the little priceless toys that you had squirreled away were still where they were. And then you had to clean out all the mouse droppings and wash all the dishes. And washing anything 
of course, was very difficult because we had a wood stove in the kitchen uh, and you'd have to heat the water that way. And uh, I don't have a vivid memory of this, but when my sister and I were very small and we're in diapers, that's the way you had to wash the diapers. You had to boil them. <laughs> and water was a problem. Uh, <clears throat> you couldn't drink the water because the pipe went into the lake and it wasn't considered safe. So we went over to a, a beautiful little mountain stream, uh, which we called Ice Cream Creek. And we got our drinking water there. Well, that changed with electricity. And electricity really made things a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, formerly, we would uh, go to bed when the Coleman lamp uh, came down, lost its power uh, the second time. And that would be about 9.30, 9.45, maybe 10 o'clock, because uh, it wasn't going to be light in the cabin anymore. So you went to bed. With electricity, you could stay up later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But we had an outside privy. We still have the outside privy. We uh, uh, are now got a project that hasn't happened yet to put in uh, modern plumbing facilities uh, there. Uh, it's going to take a couple of years mm. to get that done. Uh, but it was primitive living. And uh, we one thing we did when we got there uh, was my father insisted that my sister and I take off our shoes and start going barefoot. And it hurt for about a week. <laughs> yeah. You were city or, and kids. And all of a sudden you realized that you were running up and down the paths with uh, pine needles and pine cones and one thing or another. And you, it was fine because your feet had toughened up. But that's what we did all summer. Hmm. We were barefoot all summer long mm -hmm. because he wanted his kids to live like the Indians. Interesting. Uh and I found it marvelous. I mean, it just, they got me. Yeah. I don't go barefoot anymore, but. Uh. <laughs> um, what, when, when your dad wrote the novella, you write in your book of him giving you the manuscript for it. Right. And asking for edits, for editorial comments. And, and your response basically was, this is perfect. I, I'd love to because I've read it so many times. I've got my I've got my copy right here. It actually lives up at our cabin most of the time, but I brought it back home, and now I'll keep it right next to your book. Um, t tell us about that experience of the first time you read that story. Well, to walk it back just a little bit, he'd been writing stories. Um, my mother was gone, and uh, he kept getting offers to continue on at the university to teach on a year-by-year -year basis. And he got to be 70. And my sister and I both told him, look, you know, you've always told us, don't wear out your welcome. Uh, and you've talked a big game about writing. Uh, maybe it's time. And so he said, I, I didn't realize it was going to have the effect it did, but he, he said later that that's what kicked him over. Hmm. And he retired from uh the University of Chicago and began writing. And his first stories were yarns. Uh, some of them wound up in the back of a river runs through it. And they're good yarns, but that's what they were. And he would show them to us, us being myself and my wife, uh, Frances, who was a reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times at one point. And we would comment on them. And, uh, you know, it slows down a little at the end, Dad. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And he would actually make revisions, which uh, I found uh, strange and wonderful. 
because uh, as a teacher, he didn't make revisions. I mean, you know, he was the great authority on everything. And here he was changing things based on what we said. Wow. Then we went uh, for a weekend to a, uh, a beach cottage in Michigan that uh, belonged to a friend of ours. And he was there with his friend uh, and said, uh, I'd like you to read this. And he didn't ask for comments okay. or edits. He just handed it to us. And I looked at him and he looked funny. Hmm. Uh, he looked like, no, this wasn't just another story. Okay. This was something else altogether. And it was one of those wonderful fall uh, days with a huge wind coming in off Lake Michigan and uh, rattling the windows and we had a fire in the fireplace. Hmm. And so we stayed in and uh, we both read was it. Were these type, typewritten, uh, t- typed or hand? I'm pretty sure that, yes, they were. Yeah. I mean, his handwriting, we could not <laughs> have worked out yeah. uh, quite that fast. And I've seen the uh, the handwritten draft, huh. and this was not it. This was a typed version. Okay. And we looked at each other, and I, was, I wasn't there. I wasn't up with it. And my wife was, Fran was, and she said, this is just like the stuff we used to read in college, the, the great literature, the classic literature, world-class literature. I said, my God, you're right. And so we went out to see him in the in the main room, and he was sitting in a, in a, in a soft chair by the fire. And boy, he looked like you could, uh, you could hurt him with a word. Hmm. And we told him, he said, this is just wonderful. It's perfect. Don't change a word. Uh, we're not into editing this. And then tried to say something else and really couldn't. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's stunning. Uh, to have read that, it, like it came out of, where'd this come from? Because this wasn't like the other stories. This is absolutely magnificent. Uh, did I really feel the things that I felt? Uh, so it takes some time to catch up with the book. Uh, and it was, uh, he was very happy hmm. and very pleased. And I told him, I said, you know, I haven't read anything as authentic about fishing since uh, you gave me Ernest Hemingway's uh, Big Two-Hearted River, which is what got me into writing and still does. Mm. And uh, he, I haven't read anything this this high, this elevated since Shakespeare. And uh, it was true. Yeah. It, 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 I think he liked the Hemingway one almost better <laughs> than the Shakespeare <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. No, I can see that. Uh <laughs> Yeah, it is a stunning book in that way. And I can see that it would take your breath away and your wife's breath away after you read that draft. And do you think when he was sitting in that chair, it had taken so much out of him to write it? And that's why he looked maybe fragile. Obviously, he's in his 70s at the time, but uh, uh, look tender or fragile or uh, vulnerable? I think it just meant everything to yeah. him. And that uh, he wanted it to mean everything to other people. Uh, and he didn't know yeah. yet what the reaction of people was going to be, Tom. Yeah, right. uh, I mean, some very dear friends had read it and told him, this is great, this is great. But I will tell you, when people tell you that about your writing, you don't always I, believe it. I'm right there with you, man. I That happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, is this somebody who's giving me an honest opinion or is this somebody who's giving me a line? Yeah. And uh, we were not 
going to give them a line. And we were family. Uh, it was going to be honest. And it was a book about family. Uh, so there was an awful lot at stake. And to have it more than pass muster, yeah. uh, I think, was relieving uh, as well as gratifying. It, it seems to me it was also ahead of its time in its genre because right now this um, – what's the category is a new word for it. It's called autofiction, which is kind of autobiographical fiction, is – is new and it's very popular. But at the time, I'm guessing part of the struggle in getting it published at first was editors didn't quite know what to do with it. The same way I put it in the category of like uh, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, which is, is that a Vietnam memoir? O'Brien has always said, no, it's a novel, but the main character is named Tim O'Brien and he goes to all the places I went to in Vietnam. (laughs) And similarly, a River Runs Through It is is a novella. It's fiction, but it's also not fiction. It's it's a it's a it's a mysterious hybrid, which I think is part of the beauty of it. Yes. Um. Yeah. Uh, these categories, I think, are you know we get uh, really paralyzed. Of by course. Uh, <laughs> You've lived it, and in, same in the newspaper industry as well. Yeah. Yeah, you get introduced to When I first started writing, people didn't didn't quite know how to introduce me. They say a journalist, yes, because I'd been a newspaper man. And uh, but then do you say author or do you say storyteller or what? And they get themselves all locked up in knots on this, and I couldn't care yeah. less. <laughs> you know, I write. I wrote journalism for thirty years for a newspaper, and actually more than that, I loved it, and I still occasionally write uh, uh, magazine pieces. And I've written six books. Uh, that are nonfiction. Uh, if you want to call this literary nonfiction, right. go ahead. If you want to call it storytelling, fine. <laughs> you know, Homer was a storyteller. Up, you, or, Jesus Christ or, or was a storyteller. Up market uh, nonfiction. You know, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, you're putting me in pretty good company. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> Have a good time with it. Um, what was it like for your family when the movie was made? How old were you and what was your experience of the movie being made? Because that took a, a, a story that was popular in literary circles and in, I'd say, outdoorsy, you know, like fly fishing circles. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nearly perfect movie in, in my estimation. Um, what was it like during the making of it? Well, I had to... Didn't have a deep relationship with it at the time that uh, Redford was uh, actively making the movie and so on. I was the foreign editor of the Chicago Tribune, and I had two kids in college, uh, and it was a, a school, and it was an extremely busy time. I'd gone back to Chicago uh, for a final tour there from the Washington Bureau, where I spent most of my career, and it was difficult, uh, and. I met him uh, a couple of times. He was very gracious. I think he did a great job on the movie, but I wasn't a big part of that. Uh, He did say to me at one point, he said, you know, this is going to change your life. Uh, Wait and see. And I kind of resented that because I didn't want my life changed. Uh, But he was right about that. And uh, it has. Uh, It was, you know, my dad wasn't there. Uh, and that was kind of the missing 
missing entity to all this. He had wanted to see his movie, but he had probably, because he was a difficult person and because they wrote an initially a really lousy script oh. that he found offensive, um, he probably prevented it from being done in his lifetime. Uh, but maybe for the, if you is, look at the timing on it, I, I've never talked to Redford about this. And as I say, I have a lot of respect for the yeah. guy and I don't want to apply motives to him. But when that script landed, uh, it had an opening scene with Paul uh, catching a fish off a dock in Sealy Lake, big rainbow, holding him up in both hands and crack, breaking his neck to kill him. And my father was not happy I with this. I, I mean, they had to scrape him off the ceiling. Yeah. And that stopped the development of the movie until he was gone. And then the development of the movie went on extremely quickly. So you can draw your own conclusion from that. So he was a bit uh, of he, he was a bit of a, the movie. a quality control on the on, on the transition from he had uh, he had creative uh, veto on it. Yeah, uh, it's incredible that he got that and he was given that by Redford, but he did, and uh, he exercised it. Uh, whether knowingly or unknowingly, yeah. uh, and stopped it from being made in his lifetime. So he wasn't there. There was a lot of activity going on about the movie and uh, and so on, but it uh, it had a missing actor. I went out to Montana at one point to salute, check in, say, here I am, sure. yep, for a couple of days, and uh, that was the end of it. Uh, went to a premiere and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and it took off. Yeah. And it is still uh, taking off. It uh, is still watched. Uh, it's been 25 years. Uh, it's an iconic movie. Uh, people have asked me, said, well, uh, aren't you expecting to make a movie out of home waters? And my answer is, well, uh, I'm going to be extremely careful about anything like that if it uh, starts to happen, because uh, I do not want to interfere with or uh, put something up uh, that is inferior uh, uh, or muck around with this. Uh, maybe a documentary, but th that hasn't happened. And I'm not, I can't say I'm really interested in that side of it. Yeah. Uh, what I'm interested in is not messing up something that was done extremely well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was done extremely well, and I, I guess I'm glad that while your father was still alive, he put his foot down on that terrible opening scene because that would have been very out <laughs> of character for Paul, and it's, it's a long ways from anything that he wrote, um, that your father wrote in the novella. Um, speaking of Paul, here's an interesting thing. You know, in, in A River Runs Through It, both the book and the movie, Paul dies at the end. So Paul's alive during... The action, um, of course, his death is really the climax, or, or maybe even after the climax of the of the novel. It takes place as as I've heard you note in uh, you note in the book, and I've heard you note in other interviews off camera, uh, uh, you know, off the page. You don't have to right. live through the death of Paul as an eyewitness. You live through it in. Norman and Reverend McLean's uh, uh, through their eyes, you you live through it, but right. exactly in your book, Paul's dead the whole time. So Paul starts out deceased in your book, and he 
And what I wrote in the margins of your book as I was reading it is, Paul is a ghost who haunts this family. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But Paul's presence, because you also bring out something that we wouldn't know from A River Runs Through It, that that Paul had an extraordinary relationship with your mother as well. That they were, yes. be- it seems like, best, best friends. friends. Yeah. So, yeah, kind of soulmates. so both yeah. of your parents lost their maybe the closest person to them other than each other. Um, so I just thought that was a different perspective. And I wonder about, you never met your Uncle Paul, and yet he's such a presence in your life. And he's in this, he's in your book from the beginning and all throughout. So I, again, I don't mean a ghost in a negative way. I mean, he, he's just a presence. <laughs> when you said you've never met your Uncle Paul, I laughed because I was like, are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, right. <laughs> I met him when I was a kid. He's been my shadow person my whole life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've met him, uh, but I know exactly what you meant. You're right. Uh, Paul is the unifying vision for A River Runs Through It. And he runs through home waters, but he is not the unifying vision right. uh, there. It is, uh, I hope, a larger vision uh, of a broader family. His murder is very important, but it is not the central uh, event. Uh, my father's reaction to it is part of that. Paul's legacy has interested me a lot since Home Waters came out because I've had to think about it. You've written a lot and you know, you don't always think through uh, your writing until sometimes it's over. So I've done a lot of thinking about it since Home Waters uh, has been published and people have been reacting to it. And it occurs to me that Paul's legacy uh, in the account that I give of it initially is a very sordid one, that he was killed in a back alley uh, in Chicago, not Montana. Uh, He may very well have gone looking for a fight and tried to start a fight. Uh, He was certainly drinking. Uh, Oh, boy. I mean, this is getting bad. And my father tried to resurrect that a bit by saying that it was somehow connected to his gambling debts, Mm -hmm. as though that elevated it. This is getting not an awful lot better. (laughs) But, but... Let's walk this through a little bit. After A River Runs Through through It came out, uh, my dad got a lot of fan mail, and I've looked at some of it. Uh, Some of it came in after he was gone. Some of it is in his papers. And a lot of people wrote in and said, oh, I have a sibling just like Paul, Mm -hmm. and she has always been a troubled soul, or he has. And I tried to give them something of myself to make the situation better, and they refused Mm -hmm. it. And this has haunted me my entire life. And I have felt alone and I have felt as though I were a failure. After reading your account, I realized that I'm not alone, that there is another person and probably a wide community in the same fix that I'm in. And you took it to a level of eloquence that gave comfort. Hmm. And words can do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's legacy number one and not a bad one. The other legacy is that there would be no A River Runs Through It. Yeah. Young Men and Fire, any of my five fire books, or Home Waters, Hmm. if it wasn't for Paul's murder. Hmm. And he can be a legacy contributor to that. His death was not meaningless and sordid. It elevated a lot of things mm-hmm. to a higher, got them up to a higher level, and it produced a great deal 
uh, of literature that is important to Montana and the West and probably beyond that. Uh, so that's something that I've had to realize uh, after Home Waters. I mean, I know what he's done in my life. Yeah. He's, uh, I've become a newspaper man uh, the way he did. And when I did, I knew that this is exactly what I should be doing. Uh, I'm a fisherman and I've always been measured against Paul and all, you know, you can't measure up to him uh, because he's gone and he doesn't have to go out there and uh, take a rod and fish against you. Uh, and lastly, uh, he is a negative hmm. example. Uh, and I think he's that for kids who watch the movie too, because they know that you can't act the way Paul does, yeah. although they like him and they love Brad Pitt. Uh, and you can't do that and really get away with it. And then when he is murdered, they don't have to see it. Yeah. That's one of my positives, real heavy duty positives on the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's also been in my life that, you know, I've, I've realized that if you act like that, you know, if you do these things, yeah. you're gonna, there are real serious negative consequences. Maybe you shouldn't do them. Uh, so it's had a personal uh, effect. Too. Yeah, that's the least important of all three. But it's no, important you're to right. Me. It is. I mean that that reckless life that Paul lived is um, it is a warning. But also, you want to. There are times in the film as his life gets more and more off track that you want to grab him by the shoulders and and yell, "Don't you see how much Norman loves you?" Like he Norman loves you so much, and he needs you around, and um, and I always want to grab him and shake him and saying, yes, they all loved you, but they loved you to death and you should have got out and had your own independent oh. life. Uh, why didn't you do that more? Yeah. Uh, the man was in his thirties. I don't think he'd ever had a very serious love affair huh. uh, with a woman. Uh, he, uh, had a profession. He was well regarded and respected in it in Montana, uh, covering, the state capital for the Helena Independent, later the Helena Independent Record, is a big deal. I mean, if you do it properly, and he did. Yeah. He was feared. He was uh, respected. Uh, you can have a whole career doing that. Uh, why didn't you establish that for yourself? And the reason he didn't is that he had this whole other side to him uh, where he had troubled behavior. You know, it's not uh, one thing that comes out in the film and in the uh and the book and the novella is the, the, the strict Calvinist Presbyterianism in the home in which your father was raised and father yes. and Paul were raised. Um, yeah. And, you know, Paul would hardly be the first to rebel from a strict <laughs> preacher father figure. Um, I mean, this goes back to the prodigal son. There's, you know, ancient mythology about the the wayward son and the faithful son and this kind of thing. How and you 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 mentioned this in the in in Home Waters as well. You, you touch on it, and I've again I've heard you met, talk about it in other interviews. How how have you how from from your grandfather, your namesake, to your father, to you? How have you renegotiated? spirituality and religion coming from that strict Calvinist background? Well, my father was part of it, but he also uh, got away from it. And that left the field open, frankly. Uh, when I was young, uh, I was recruited to sing in an Episcopal choir. 
uh, at a church right near us, a wonderful little church, St. Paul's in Hyde Park. And I did that for years and years mm -hmm. and years. And it gave me an independence. Uh, every Wednesday night, we would have uh, choir practice. And on Sundays, you would go to church and sing. And I loved mm -hmm. it. Uh, loved the music and the ritual and the whole thing. Uh, I went to an Episcopal school and uh, I'm a confirmed, but obviously unorthodox Episcopalian and uh, kind of found my own way. Mm -hmm. I mean, does that sound so odd? Uh, it horrified my father. Uh, what I'd done, he said, do you realize you've joined the English church? <laughs> so he'd rather have you go to no church than the Episcopal church. Well, you I don't know. I mean, he used to to show up when we had big choir events and uh, we made a record or something like that. And then he would, and then he'd become, oh, I am the son of a, of a minister kind right. of thing. And, you know, so he was about as conflicted about that as you can be. Yeah. Uh, and as I say, it kind of opened up uh, an avenue for me to go my own way, which has not been entirely satisfactory, but uh, at least it's mine. Yeah. Well, and it seems that um, as well as the inside of an Episcopal church, the outdoors of Montana, of being at the cabin at Sealy Lake, fishing in your home water rivers, is also a very spiritual thing for you. Biggest church in the world, the outdoors. Yeah. yeah. Um, in your, have you gone? Are you going? Do you do you go back this year? Have you been back to Montana? Are you going back? I was back in June, July, and then I'm going for September. But this is mostly work uh, for home waters. Okay. Uh, it was extremely hot yeah. uh, in June, July, and disconcerting, yeah. and unpleasantly so. Uh, it's never uh, hot in June in Montana. Right. We used to try to get there about the first or second or third of July uh, to avoid all of June because it was so cold and wet and nasty mm. and you know storms coming in all the time and the fishing wasn't any good. Uh, but it isn't like that anymore. I mean, climate change has had a, made a radical difference in that. Yeah. Uh, but I always like to go early, uh, May, June, uh, maybe into July and late, uh, September, October, partly because there are a lot of people who use the cabin, oh. uh, other than me. Um, I have two sons. My uh, sister has two sons and they all have families and they, use it uh, most easily uh, during the summer yeah, uh, rather than uh, on the shoulder sides because of school sure. and jobs and whatnot. So I try to leave it for them. Okay. But I also find that I like those times yeah. best. Uh, it's crowded in the summer. It was uh, nastily crowded in June, July. I wound up on one occasion going to fish the Blackfoot and looked at what was going on, uh, boats coming by, parking lot at the at the put in place full of cars and I just turned around and left. Yeah. Uh I don't need that. That's not what I'm there for. I know ways of handling it to you can time it so you're on the river when the boats aren't there. But a friend of mine was saying that he counted boats uh rigs mm -hmm. 
uh, trucks and cars and yeah. all the rest of that stuff at one put in on the Blackfoot, and there were a hundred of them. Gosh. Well, you know, the Missouri River can't handle that. The Clark Fork, right. the Yellowstone, which are much bigger rivers, yes. can't handle that kind of overuse. A uh, friend of mine, David Brooks, who is the executive director for Trout Unlimited Montana, has the perfect phrase. Uh, the Blackfoot is being loved to death. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the movie, especially, and the book, A River Runs Through It, uh, contributed to an effort that brought the Blackfoot back from being a really lousy uh, fishing river to a very healthy one. But they also brought in crowds and crowds. Yeah. It's not just the Blackfoot. Uh, during the pandemic especially, it has happened uh, all over on any blue ribbon stream. The Madison is overrun. Uh, I fished the Missouri one day, and we used to fish that almost alone hmm. uh, near Wolf Creek, my mother's town. And I fished it with an old friend of mine from my Tribune days. And there were boats all up and down it. The banks were lined with fishermen. Uh, it was crowded. Yeah. Uh, we caught fish, and the fish were moving in the morning, uh, even though it was very hot. But the next day, I could have gone back and fished another day uh, with a friend of mine, another friend of mine. And I said, well, let's go to Great Falls and go to the Lewis and Clark Museum and the Charlie Russell Museum. Uh, and that's what we did. I just, it was too hot. Yeah. Uh, there were too many people. Uh, it was a half a day of fishing. The fish quit at one o'clock. And the guide said, well, you can still catch fish if you use a bobber and a dropper. I said, well, I don't use a bobber and a dropper. I, you know, I also don't fish with worms or dynamite. <laughs> right. uh, so, yeah. you know, it's, what, what I do when I, when I fish a whole day like that is I take the afternoon off and wait for the evening rise. But because it's, you've hired that boat and you're going to be in it for X number of hours and, and so on, that's how you fish it. You fish from morning till late afternoon. Yeah. Well, about late afternoon, things are starting to get good again. I ran into a young guy, uh, very nice, and we were talking. He said he'd read A River Runs Through It when he was a teenager in the East. And he decided he wanted to live in Montana. Hmm. I hear this story, by the way, with some regularity. Sure. So he came out to Montana and he became a fishing guide, big, strong guy. And after two years, he said he quit. I said, well, why did you quit? And he said, because I love the sport and the only barrier to entry is money. Hmm. And that's not what fishing is all about. I mean, he was a fine young man. Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. I I do wonder that sometimes about fly fishing is it it's been so mythologized and it so lends itself to a kind of a more of a transcendent understanding of, of being outdoors whether it's you know your father's book your book uh, the river why I mean the, the 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 list of fly fishing books that tap into these bigger themes is is almost endless but um it has my brother fished out there and this year and a guided trip. And he said, uh, the first thing he told me when he got back, I fished on the river where they filmed a river runs through it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what river I was don't that? even remember. I think he was on the Blackfoot, but I know it wasn't actually but filmed they didn't there. Film it on the I Blackfoot. know, I know, <laughs> right. but I think the guides <laughs> say that they them. did, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. But yeah. well, I, I hope that when you get back out there in the fall, it's a little less crowded and you can have some 
solitary time, knee deep in a river, uh, casting a fly rod. Well, a friend of mine said jokingly, he said, your next book, instead of calling it Home Waters, you're going to have to call it Private yeah. Water. <laughs> so you can get some of the solitude that you talk about in Home yeah. Waters. Well, I sure appreciate you writing the book because for so many of us who feel some kind of connection with your family, to have the next generation of writer in you look back on everything, look back on your grandparents and, and your parents and your late uncle, you know, all that. I, it's just great. And, and I appreciate it. And, and it's just part of, you know, it's part of the legacy of the American West, your family and your writing. Well, thank you for saying that. that uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. 